I'm going to assume that probably most of you in this room at some time in your life have applied for a job. Uh, that just seems to be part of uh, the being a grown-up, right? We have to get work, and we have to apply. And part of that application process, along with filling out an application, oftentimes requires us to submit a resume, right? And what's the purpose of a resume? A resume is designed for us as a future employee for our future employer to get to know us a little better, to hear about our past experience, our past education, our qualifications, any special skills that we might have, we get a chance, if you've ever put a resume together, to put your best foot forward, right? I mean, you don't put bad stuff on there. You put all the good stuff on a resume because you're hoping that your, hopefully your future employer will see that and go, oh, you're just the right person for this job. Well, as I was studying this particular passage in the end of chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians in the first few verses of chapter 12, I began to read that and study that and began to see that really what Paul was putting here was a, a resume of his life in some ways. A resume, and we'll see in a moment that there was a point behind this resume that, that he was having to defend his apostleship to the, quote, super apostles there in Corinth. In fact, let's kind of get a little context for our study this morning. We, we're still in that section known as Paul's fool's speech. And as Pastor Russell mentioned last week, that, that Paul has had to take on a posture of defense that he's just not real comfortable in. We can sense that in the wording that he uses. It is something that he's just not real comfortable, but he realized he needed to do this because there was this group of people, as we've seen over and over throughout our study of 2 Corinthians, this group of people that these self-proclaimed super apostles that had this two-pronged attack, and their two-pronged attack was this. Part one was they were attacking the gospel, the true gospel. They were teaching what Paul described as another gospel, which was no gospel at all. But in addition to attacking the true gospel, they were also attacking Paul and his character and his apostleship. And so now Paul has had to take on this defensive posture, and he's been doing that for a while, and he really does that in the section we're going to be looking at today. But here's the, here's the important thing you need to remember. Paul's not defending himself as much as he's defending the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He's defending the gospel. Sure, he doesn't want them to think false things about him, but that doesn't really matter to Paul. It's more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and keep that in mind as we go through our study. And I'm always amazed at how Paul takes any situation and he uses it to teach and disciple. And so he's showing those people in Corinth, at the church in Corinth, what a true apostle looks like. But more importantly, he's demonstrating and showing them what a true follower of Christ really looks like. So let's start with our big idea this morning. And if you have an outline, you'll see that on your outline. And it's simply this. I will learn to boast in my weakness and suffering. I will learn to boast in my weakness and suffering for in my weakness, God's strength is on display. So we're going to be looking at this passage of, of Paul and what I'm calling Paul's resume of boasting and suffering. And as we look at it, one of the things you're going to say, because I, I, I thought the same thing, is you're going to say, well, this is the apostle Paul. If anybody could be called a super apostle, it's Paul, right? He's, he's different than me. He's different than you, right? He, he would not expect us to live up to him. But I want to remind you, back 
In his first letter to the church at Corinth, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul said this to the church at Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me. Follow me. Do what I do as I follow Christ. And so we don't have an excuse to say, well, this is Paul and you know, he, he's different and I don't have to you know, f- try to follow him. No, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So let's look at Paul's resume. And he has four sections, just like oftentimes a resume has different sections. We have four sections. And we're gonna look at each text as we get to that section. I'm not gonna read the whole thing at once. We're gonna break it up into these four sections. So Roman number one on your outline is Paul's heritage. Paul's heritage. And we pick up halfway through a verse because that's where Pastor Russell left off last week. Halfway through verse 21, we're gonna pick up on the second part of that. And Paul says this, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And so what what Paul's saying right here is, okay, if if they're gonna boast about these things, I don't want to, it's my, my fool speech here, but I'm going to also have to boast in these categories as well. And then verse 22, he says this, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Here Paul says, okay, if we're gonna compare the super apostles with myself, let's start with heritage. Let's start with pedigree. And basically, if this was a contest and this was round one, Paul would have been, Paul's basically saying, I concede to a tie here. They're, they're Hebrews, Hebrews, so am I. They're Israelites, so am I. They're descendants of Abraham, so am I. It's a tie. But what's fascinating is Paul did not have to concede to a tie here because Paul was different than pretty much any other Israelite that had ever lived. Paul had a pedigree that few could equal. He says several years later in Philippians chapter three, verses four through six, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's fleshly superiority was indisputable, but he's like saying, ah, it's no big deal. We'll call it a tie. You're Hebrew, I'm Hebrew. You're Israelite, I'm Israelite. You're descendant of Abraham, so am I. Roman numeral two. Let's move on to where Paul really wants to get into this, and it's his suffering. This part of his resume where he says, his suffering, where we look at his suffering. In verse 23 is where we pick up here. In verse 23 is one of the key verses in our passage this morning. I've got one other one I'll highlight again, but this one's a very important one because when he asks, he continues asking questions, but he's not asking the same. It, it changes here when he says, are they servants of Christ? And so he switches from boasting in the flesh to now boasting in his weakness. So going from the flesh, I'm a Hebrew, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, to now Am I a servant of Christ? Put on your outline at the very back on the back page a resource that you might be interested in in getting. It's a book by D.A. Carson entitled A Model of Christian Maturity. And basically he looks at the four last chapters of 2 Corinthians in this book. But D.A. Carson suggests that Paul's detractors might have expected Paul to have said something quite different than what he's about to say. They, They would have expected him to say something like this. 
I have established more churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I've written more books. I've raised more money. I've dominated more councils. I've walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I've commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. But Paul says none of that. He could have, but he says none of that. In fact, he turns convention on his head and argues for the authenticity of his apostleship, not from his strength, but from his weakness and through his suffering. And so when he asks the question, are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm a better one. And the reason he says he's a better servant of Christ is not because of any merit in Paul, but because he knows that Christ is his Lord and he has committed his life to follow Jesus and his example of suffering. And so his claim to authenticity is because he is a servant of Jesus Christ and suffered greatly for his sake. And by the way, Paul knew he was going to be suffering for Christ. In fact, the Lord had promised Paul early on in his conversion that he would be doing just that. In fact, if we go all the way back to Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, the Lord, through Ananias, was speaking about what was to come for Paul. And he says this in verse 15 of chapter 9. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Man, can you imagine the beginning of your fellowship of Jesus Christ and you're told you're going you're gonna to be suffering greatly for the sake of my name? But truth be told, that's exactly what every one of us as a follower of Christ should have expected, right? That if we're going to follow Christ, that we will experience struggles in our lives. Now, Paul's going to go on and describe this catalog of sufferings. And I'm going to read the whole section here, uh, beginning in verse 24, and just kind of go through the whole thing, and actually the end of verse 23, and let you just kind of take it in all in one breath of what Paul has endured for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse, second part of verse 23. He says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. So you get an idea of what Paul was dealing with here. And let's start with letter A, the persecution that he dealt with, because he mentions a couple of things that he dealt with, persecution from authorities. In fact, from two sources, one from the Jews, one from the Romans. And this first one is from the Jews. He mentions the 40 lashes less one. And what was this 40 lashes less one that he endured five times, at least five times? This was the, the most humiliating and hard, hard punishment that the Jew could administer to another Jew. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're not going to look there, but if you want to write that down, you can read about these 40 lashes that, that the law prescribes for those that violated the law of God. 
40 lashes, and, and it was described now as 40 lashes less one, but the law said you could do up to 40 lashes, but they wanted to create a margin of error because the person that was administering these lashes, if they went over 40, they would be liable to be flogged. So they said, well, let's do 39. We'll have a little margin of error in case we miscount somewhere along the way. But what did it entail? It entailed basically stripping off most of their clothes, and these lashes took place both on the chest and the back, where it would literally rip the skin off the person. And so not only was it excruciatingly painful, but it was extremely humiliating to have this done. And Paul had it done at least five times. You know, do the math. That's almost 200 lashes that Paul experienced. And here's what blows my mind about this, is that Paul demonstrated such a great love for the Jews in this. How? Well, what did, where did Paul go when he showed up in a new city first? He went to the synagogue, didn't he? He went to the Jews, and it was these same Jews that were administering these lashes to Paul. But Paul didn't care because Paul wanted to take the gospel to them. And so the question for me and the challenge for me is, how often am I afraid of what someone might say? So I just say, well, you know, I, I just won't, I won't share the gospel with them. They, I don't think they would listen. I know I brought it up one, one time before, and so I'm just going to back off. How unlike Paul that is, Right? Because Paul knew that it was going to be rejected most likely, but he said, I'm, I don't care. God has called me to take the gospel to everyone. And I'll start with the Jews. The other source of punishment came from the Romans. Three times he says, I was beaten with rods. This was the form, that, form of the instrument of Roman punishment and not any, really any better than what uh, he would have experienced with the lashes. Uh, we have one recording of this in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas were arrested, stripped naked, and beaten until the magistrates were satisfied. Uh, but Paul lists this happening at least three times, separate beatings on, um, with a rod. And then he kind of just casually throws off the fact that, well, by the way, once I was stoned. And if you want to read about that, go to Acts chapter 14, where he was stoned and left for dead. You see, Paul's body became a living monument to his suffering. And as he would write at the conclusion of his letter to the Galatians, from now on, here's what he said, from now on, this is Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on the body the marks of Jesus. I bear on the body the marks of Jesus. These were, these were scars that would authenticate his apostleship, but more importantly, these were scars of love. He cared so much about people and sharing the gospel that he would not let anything stop him. He would be willing to be persecuted for that. The question I would ask you and I ask myself is, are you ready to be persecuted for your faith? You say, well, I live in America. We don't get persecuted for sharing the gospel. Well, that's true for the most part, but it's coming, right? We already see that is changing. But here's the truth, the sobering truth, that in the world today, 350 plus million Christians are highly persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. 350 million. If you don't believe me, go to the Open Doors uh, Ministry website. And they are a ministry that wants to come alongside persecuted Christians all around the world. They have a listing of the top 50 countries where persecution is the worst. Is America on that list? No, we're not. Yeah, there are things that can happen if we take a stand for our faith, if we begin to share our gospel like I believe God has called us to do. If we share that gospel with other people, we will endure some type of persecution and affliction and suffering. But is it what... Paul went through, probably you're not going to get flogged, you're not going to get whipped, you're not going to get beat, most likely you're not going to be put in jail. But yet we're, 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 we're so averse to sharing what God has given this amazing gift of the gospel with other people. Got to move on, letter B, risk. Not only was there persecution, but there were risk. 
And this is that section where he goes into to all these dangers. And, and I, I, can just, I can just hear Paul you know, saying, you know, if, if you're going to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to involve risk. It's going to have the potential for suffering. But we have oftentimes bought into the idea that being a Christian means the absence of suffering, that there's all this wonderful joy and happiness in my life, and that if I'm suffering, I'm, I must be something wrong with my faith. And that is so far from the truth of Scripture. I guarantee you, Paul, if you were to ask him today, are there risks in being a follower of Jesus Christ? He would say, yes and yes. In fact, over in Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul, Paul shares this that just makes me chuckle every time. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Paul knew every time he would show up in a new city that affliction and most likely he was going to get thrown in jail was going to happen. So what's going to happen when you go to Lystra? Well, I'm probably going to get beat up and thrown in jail. What's going to happen when you go to the next city? Well, I'm probably going to get beat up and thrown in jail. What's going to happen in the next city? Well, I'm probably going to get beat up and thrown in jail. Now, for most of us, that would be somewhat discouraging. For Paul, it seemed to motivate him because he knew that was a sign that he was following, the, following Christ and he knew that there would be persecution. Now, he goes into this long list of things, a lot of dangers that happen in this particular section that I read a moment ago. And really, it's, it's, it's a list of things that I don't think any of us would ever want to do. And what's awesome about this is if Paul had chosen to, he could have avoided most of this stuff. He could have just said, I'll play it cool. I'll, uh, you know, I, I won't go to the synagogue first. I'll, I'll back off a little bit on my, my preaching and my teaching. But no, that was not Paul at all. Paul's resume lists all of these points of suffering and risk that he took to follow Jesus Christ. The end of getting closer to the end of his ministry in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through eight, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The question this morning is how risk tolerant are you for the sake of the gospel? How risk tolerant? When you hear about a mission trip to South Asia, and by the way, the country that uh, is part of that is probably on that top 50 list. Are you gonna say, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it's too risky for me to consider going to, to South Asia to share the gospel with other people. I, I just, I would encourage you to realize that Following Christ is going to involve risk and potential suffering, no matter what you do, no matter where you go. Wouldn't you rather be obedient for God to be using you for his glory as you follow after him? The next thing, letter C, Paul's anxiety. Not only was his struggle, not only was his suffering physical, but it was also emotional. Paul had a pastoral heart when he says that he had this daily anxiety for all the churches it bothered him that they were struggling. He wanted to do whatever he could do to encourage them, to disciple them. And in fact, I would say that Paul's greatest boast outside of Christ was his heart for the churches. And this is what I believe sustained him through the physical pain that he dealt with. So what are some takeaways as we hear about Paul's boasting and his suffering? I've listed three things on your outline there. The first is suffering for Christ is not the exception. It should be the expectation. 
It's not the exception. It should be the expectation, which is, again, counter to what most of us as Christians in America think, right? We don't think I should suffer. That should be the expectation. We think of the normalcy being peace and prosperity in our lives. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be what? What's it say? Will be? Persecuted. We don't want to say that out loud because it's in the text, right? God's word says that. But if we're going to live godly lives and follow after Christ, we should expect persecution. But yet we've dialed it back so much, and I'm guilty of this as well. We've dialed it back so much because we don't want to deal with any kind of struggle, suffering, affliction, or persecution. Number two, suffering should be recognized as part of our sanctification process. Now, the passage here, Acts 14, 21 through 22, we hear that group of people that have come to know Christ. They've made many disciples. In fact, let me just read it. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the deal. As Christians, we often spend so much of our lives trying to avoid suffering that we have almost defined happiness as the absence of suffering. Here's the truth, though. God can and does use suffering in our lives to refine us, right? To disciple us, to grow us, to mature us. And so by avoiding and doing everything we can to avoid suffering, oftentimes we're missing what God wants to do in and through our lives. We need to learn to suffer well. We need to learn in the light what we'll need in the dark. And number three, suffering for Christ is not a sacrifice but rather a privilege. Paul, after enduring more and more suffering, after he wrote to 2 Corinthians, wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, 29 through 30, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. When's the last time you considered it a privilege to suffer? When was the last time you thanked God for your suffering? There's a dear brother here in our church that uh, a little over seven years was diagnosed with cancer. And for these seven plus years, probably close to eight now, has struggled in and out with different treatments and different situations and different scenarios. And I had a chance to talk with him about a year and a half ago about this very specific thing in his life. And he told me, he said, Mark, it was several years in to my cancer diagnosis but the Lord brought me to a point where I was able to actually thank God for my cancer and what he had done for me through it. Wow. When's the last time you thank God for any suffering, any hardship, any struggle that you were going through? Knowing that God was working in and through that struggle and hardship to refine you, to grow you, to mature you in your faith, and yet oftentimes we think of our struggling and hardship as the opposite of God at work in our lives, that God has abandoned us, that God has left us. The third thing on Paul's resume was his weakness. His weakness, verses 30 through 33. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Another key verse, that's that second key verse. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. 
At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, when we think of a leader, most of the time we think of somebody that's strong, that's powerful, that's influential, that can come in and dominate the situation and get things done. And that's probably what the super apostles there at Corinth, how they lived out their lives as leaders over people, dominating their lives. But Paul had a very different view of what leadership was. His view of leadership was that I am a leader in my weakness, not in my strength. In fact, Paul, this whole fool speech is leading up to the climax that we'll get to next week in chapter 12. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but just for now, remember that Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, that for when I am weak, then I am, what does he say? Strong. That it's in my weakness that I am strong. And so he says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about those things that show my weakness. And so what's going on here? Well, it comes back to our big idea again that Paul has learned to boast in his weakness. Paul has learned to boast in his weakness and suffering. And he uses this beautiful example of his weakness, this story where there he is in Antioch, in Damascus. He's in Damascus. And this is just a few years after his conversion experience. And he has probably stirred up trouble and gotten enough people, enough, ruffled enough feathers to get the governor trying to, to seize him and put him into jail. And what happens? He escapes from Damascus, but it's not anything in his own power. He admits it, it was the fact they put me in maybe an old fish basket and lowered me out a window and lowered me down the wall. There I am helpless, just hanging from a rope, trusting the person that's lowering me is not going to drop me, and that's how I escaped. And it's a beautiful example of Paul saying just how weak he was in that moment. Have you ever had a Damascus escape moment for your own life? My own Damascus escape moment that's most recent for me was about two years ago. And it was a little over two years ago where I had a back injury. And it was one that like, I'd never had before. I was laid up in bed for three weeks. Could barely get out of bed just to even use the restroom. Constant pain, couldn't sleep. And it was into about the second week at some point we're just crying out to God saying, okay, God, this isn't getting any better. I still am in pain. I would never choose this for my life, but if this is what you have for me, God, so be it. And it was one of those broken moments. Many of you have been there where you've had those moments where you realize just how weak you really are. These bodies are so weak. We like to think we're strong, don't we, sometimes? But they are weak. And so in this moment, physically, there was this breaking of my, my will and my spirit to say, okay, I, I can't do what I want to do or think I should do, but I'm going to trust you, God. You are a sovereign God, and I'm trusting you in this moment. And it had a whole lot more than just a physical ramifications, but the spiritual side of trusting God in my weakness. What's your Damascus escape experience? I guarantee if we had time, we could go around and you could share points in your life where you felt that weak or weaker than I felt, where you've had the diagnosis, where you've, where you've been in constant pain. Maybe you're still there. Maybe you're still dealing with that kind of a weak moment in your life. I pray that you are able to learn to be able to boast in that weakness. In fact, here's on your outline, the takeaway here as followers of Christ, we should be quick to admit our weaknesses, knowing that Christ's strength is magnified in our weakness. Christ's strength is magnified in our weakness. Roman numeral four, the last part of Paul's resume, his vision. 
Let me read this, these four verses. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. You sense Paul's reticence and hesitation to even do this, but he goes on. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, no doubt the super apostles had boasted about their own visions, about their own revelations of the Lord. So now Paul very hesitantly brings up this incident that happened 14 years earlier in his life. And it is Paul that had this experience, even though he uses the phrase, I know a man in Christ. It's a little bit of a modest boast here for Paul. And he doesn't want to talk about it. And he's not going to tell us much of anything other than he was caught up to the third heaven, the third heaven or paradise, meaning into the presence of God. And by the way, I'll take a lot more time on Beyond the Notes this week to talk about these four verses because there's some interesting things here that we just don't have time this morning to kind of dive into. The third heaven, paradise, and being caught up in the body or out of the body. But ultimately, at the end of that, at verse four, he heard things that could not be told, things that he could not even utter. So why did Paul have this experience? I believe that Paul had this experience fairly early on in his ministry to give him that glimpse of God's amazing glory that would sustain him on this epic assignment that he would have of hardship, of toil, of beatings, of persecution, of imprisonment, of anxiety, all these things that he could look back and go, that's the glory of God. I will continue on. I will press on. And while we might not have had Paul's vision, and we didn't, we still have a glimpse of his glory through his word, right? We have all that we need right here. We don't need any more revelation. We don't need any more new visions. In fact, if someone comes to you with a vision from the Lord, please let that be a red flag. We have all we need. Paul had all he need. So how do we want to wrap this up this morning? I want to wrap it up going back to the big idea again. I will learn to boast in my weakness and suffering. How was Paul able to do that? How was he able to do that boasting in his weakness and suffering. Here's how. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He'd had an encounter with Christ on that road to Damascus that had changed his life forever. He would never be the same again, right? And it's that same encounter for those of us in Christ that if we're ever gonna be able to boast in our weakness, we're gonna have to teach and preach and remind ourselves over and over of what God has already done in our lives. That it was God that changed us. It wasn't us. That it was God that transformed us. It wasn't me. It was God that brought uh, salvation. It wasn't me. It was God that brought me from death to life, from darkness to light. It wasn't anything I did or could do. It was me simply putting my faith and trust in Christ, repenting of my sin and putting my faith and trust in him. And I need to be reminded of that, that it was God that did all the work of salvation. And he did it in Paul, and he did it in you if you're a born-again believer here. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I pray you would take serious the claims of, of God and Christ through his word. And if you'd like to talk with someone this morning, I would love to talk with you after the service about how you can know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But for those of us in Christ this morning, oh, the challenge that we would learn to boast, not in our strengths, but in our weakness, in our suffering, not for our own sake, but for the sake of Christ, that he would show himself to be strong.